Back into the book of James, chapter 4. Be looking at verses 11 through 17 together. If you remember back the last few passages we've, we've come through in chapter 4, we began with this examination of our, our desires that are, are battling within us, but God's desire to make his home in the deepest parts of who we are. And then we looked at, at James's instruction about learning the posture of humility last week. How it is that, that we allow ourselves to become lower so that, that God might raise us up. God might exalt us to the place where he is, to the way that he leads and works in our lives. And as I was thinking about uh, that posture of humility, I think one of the things that that, that the need for humility reveals is how consistently I am tempted to worship a place of control in my life. Control is sort of the, the enemy of humility. Let's see if I can get the slides to move forward here. I am, am frequently tempted to believe that if I apply the appropriate amount of effort and planning and coercion in my life that, that I might be able to get life to turn out according to my expectations. Right? That's, that's the idea behind control, that I can, I can get things to turn out the way I would like them to. And I would guess that that is a temptation that nearly every single one of us battles with to some degree. But I thought we, we would start out, somehow I got ahead of myself here, with a quick survey, a quick diagnostic test to see where this issue of control lands with you. And this is courtesy of psychology today, so take it for what it's worth. But this is, this is their quiz to, to, to recognize whether you uh, are a control freak in your, in your life. So if you want to write down your answers, if you've got a pen and paper, there are five items, and you can score yourself uh, on each of these items on a scale of one to five. So one would be you never find yourself doing these things. Two would be you seldom find yourself doing these things. Three would be you sometimes do these things. Four would be you often do this. And five would be nearly always. Okay, so, so how often do you observe yourself doing some of these behaviors. Number one, how often do you find yourself helping other people drive? One, two, three, four, five. One, never, five, always. Right? You tell people what route to take, when to make a turn, where to park in the parking lot, reminding them that the traffic light has changed. Okay, item number two. How often do you find yourself giving shoulds or oughts to other people? How often do you give unsolicited advice? Unsolicited being an important word there. Advice that wasn't asked for. One, two, three, four, five. Number three. How often do you find yourself creating personal rules, routines, rituals, or ceremonies for, for your sort of individual life day to day? 
personal rules, routines, and rituals to live by. Is that, is that a major part of your, or your day or week or not? One, two, three, four, or five. Number four, how often do you find yourself avoiding help from other people, avoiding situations that make you dependent on someone else to come through? So one never would be, you never avoid it. One would be, you know, you, you often welcome help. Five would be, you never welcome help. You don't like to be dependent. And number five, how often do you find yourself angry, irritable, or anxious when something makes you late or something doesn't go according to your plan? You find that you become angry, irritable, or anxious. So if you, if you look back over those scores, you know, where, where do you tend to fall? Are you in the ones and twos and threes? Or are you in the threes and fours and fives mostly? And if you're on the, the higher end of that spectrum, it suggests that maybe you've got some control issues in your life. If it makes you feel any better, I score pretty high on this test, several of these items. And it's actually, I think, one of the, the key areas of growth in my own adult life, in learning to be a disciple who's following Jesus with everything, with every part of who I am. I've had to learn how, how to counter this temptation to control things with the invitation of God to trust him, to live into the reality that, that he knows me and he knows my good and he loves me. And I think so much of this, this issue of control in our lives is bound up with the, the postures we spoke about last week. The posture of pride versus the posture of humility. Pride tempts us, I think, to worship at that altar of control. Right? To impose our will on the world. Whereas humility teaches us how to open our hands right, so that the, the Lord can lift us up. Humility teaches us to let God be God, to let other people be other people so that we can be who we are. As the psalmist prays, we can, we can be the people God has made, the sheep of his pasture who belong to him. And so I want to pray for us as we open up the scriptures this morning and look at this last half of James 4. And I think James, in these last several verses of chapter 4, highlights two areas where I think we're tempted to control things. And I think James is also inviting us to consider what it would look like to instead walk in those ways or those places with a posture of humility. So let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, worship is an act of surrendering control so that we can delight ourselves in something, in someone so much greater than just us. Lord, you love us, you know us, and you can lead us. 
pray that as I preach this morning, may the words come from my mouth. May the meditations and convictions of our hearts be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, we're, we're in chapter 4, starting in verse 11. And I think James didn't have psychology today tests to, to offer us control freaks, but he has a better diagnostic test, I think, to help us detect whether we're living out of that posture of humility or whether we're living in a posture of pride. And James's test is pretty simple. It has one step. James says, open your mouth and see what comes out. Back in chapter 3, James tells us, right, that our, our tongues, even though they're the smallest or among the smallest parts of our bodies, they have this enormous influence over our actions and our feelings and our desires. And I think James here says in the remainder of chapter 4 that if we examine the words of our mouth, the things we tend to say, they actually reveal the deeper posture of our hearts that might be hidden otherwise. And so when we examine our words, do we find that we are speaking words of pride or are we speaking words of humility? So the, the first item that comes up in verses 11 and 12 are words of slander. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or a sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? In verses 11 and 12, again, James is, is giving us a test. He's wanting to, to invite us to detect whether pride is infecting our relationships. And specifically, he wants to look at the words we speak about one another. Do we engage what he calls slander? And we don't use the word slander very often. Often when, when we do use the word slander in the English language, it has to do with kind of a legal setting, right? It's lawsuits about something a newspaper published regarding a, a movie star or a celebrity or a politician. But the term here in verses 11 and 12 simply means to speak words against someone else, to speak against another human being, whether that's in public or in private. And I think if we, if we follow out James's intention here more fully, it, the idea is that, that we speak words that attack their character, words that impugn their motives. We speak words in, in a way that, that we hope they hurt another person. So James asks us, do we find slanderous words, speaking against kind of words, coming from our mouths? Now let me just 
say for a moment so that we're clear, I think it's possible for us to disagree with someone, even passionately oppose what someone believes or says or does without resorting to to what James is referring to here as slander. What constitutes speaking against someone has more to do with the intentions and the posture of our hearts as we speak those words and the way, the sort of dynamics of the relationship in which they're spoken. James says we we move into the danger zone, into the risk of committing slander. When we, when we start to notice that we are judging another person. Look at, at the second half of verse 11 there. He says, anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. And when you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. So what's James getting at? How does, how does this dynamic happen? Well, let me give you an example. Let's, let's say you and I were, were working together at something. We were planning an event, or maybe in a, in a family relationship, we were, we, were, we were planning something together. And, and in the course of that event, conflict emerged, and things didn't go the way that, that one or both of us hoped they might. And there, there are different ways of communicating about, about the conflict or the disappointment or, or the way things didn't go the way we hoped. One statement might be to talk to another person and say, you know, your decision or your choice here wasn't what I expected, and, and here's why. Another way of speaking would be to say, you should do better. When we speak against someone, what happens is we elevate our, our pride or, or, or sorry, our conflict or our disagreement into the domain of pride. Slander invites us to try to control another person's response through the words we speak. Slander, I think, is a form of controlling other people with our words. So James says, instead of being down, down here, kind of at the level of another person, recognizing that in a conflict or a disagreement or a difference of opinion with another person, rather than being on the same place with them, trying to live out God's command, God's goodness, what's true and right together with them, when we engage in slander, we, we elevate ourselves to the position of judge. James says part of the problem with that is that in in elevating ourselves to become the judge, we're often prone to excusing ourselves from doing and keeping the law ourselves. We want to live above God's law. And we want to use the law, we want to use what is right or what is true like a weapon to show where someone else is wrong and where I am right. So James asks us to reflect on whether, whether we have a pattern of engaging with other people in this way. 
I think we, we often find ourselves doing this to one another in, in a few different ways. Think about your, your own habits and, and patterns of speech. How often are you tempted to say things about someone because you don't feel comfortable saying those things to that person face to face? Right? That's a, a way of speaking against. How often do I infer someone else's motives? How often do I make a judgment about what someone said or something they did without actually going to, to speak with them about what happened so that I, I can better understand and engage in a conversation? Right? That's a a quiet form, even an internal form of slander and speaking against. And I, I find myself routinely falling into these postures. But gratefully, in verse 12, James calls me into account. And James says, when we speak against another person, we, when we elevate ourselves to become the judge of another person's intentions or thoughts, James says, who do we think we are? He says, do you have the power to save? Do you have the power to destroy your brothers and sisters? In essence, James says, in our pride... And in our speech, we decide to take the place of God. And that, that does harm in two ways. Of course, when we judge another person, we inflict pain or, or a wound on someone else. But James says, I think, that it's also damaging to us. Because when you go through life judging other people, it's exhausting. It's exhausting because we're not actually able to control another person's agency. We're not actually able to control another person's response. We don't have that power, nor do we have the power to understand their thoughts and intentions on our own. And so James reminds us, God has appointed himself as the only one able to search the thoughts and intentions of our hearts and our neighbors and that's for our good. So the, the flip side then of speaking words against someone, I think would be to consider what would it look like to practice speaking words of humility? What's the alternative here? And this is something I would invite you to think about as a practice this week. When we humble ourselves before the Lord, as James says back in verse 10, how do we speak about others? And I would suggest that humble speech looks different than slander in that it would always affirm the dignity of the person we're speaking to. No matter what they've done, no matter what they've said, they remain a person God steadfastly loves and has created in his image. And so as we speak, we have to always be, be ready to, to speak and acknowledge that reality in our speech. I think humble speech 
also values conflict or values disagreement or values concern enough to have the courage to express neighbor love by speaking to someone rather than speaking against them or speaking about them. Right? Humble words speak to another person in love about our disagreement rather than against them when they're not there. And finally, I think in our humble way of speaking, we release our need to be in that place of judgment. We release our desire to be above others, and we hand that responsibility back to God. And that, too, I think is immensely freeing, right? He can lift us up when we do that. So who can you practice speaking humble words to this week? I think that would be one first practice to break that, that power or that idol of control in our lives. But moving into the, the last part of James 4 here with the last few minutes we have left. James knows we need to humble ourselves in the way we speak about others. But now he challenges us to humble ourselves in the way we speak about ourselves, and in particular, in the way we make our plans. Read with me verses 13 through 17. James says, now listen, you who say, and again, notice the the focus on statements and words. Listen, you who say, today or tomorrow. We will go to this or that city, we'll spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why do you not even know, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. James here examines the making of our plans. And if there's anything the last two years have demonstrated for us, it's that we aren't very good at making plans. We have to hold our plans loosely, right? Whether our our work schedules or school schedules or vacation plans or wedding plans, everything has been subject to change. The world of COVID, I think, has been painful for us because most of us are addicted to that need to control and to plan and to dictate what the future is going to look like. Think about your own context. What plans have you been required to change? What things have you had to give up or let go of because you could control the outcome? James seems remarkably contemporary in the way he speaks to us in verse 13. 
He says, listen, those of you who say, today I'm going to do this, tomorrow I'm going to do that. I'm going to go over here, I'm going to do this, I'm going to make my money there. James says, listen, those of you who have five-year plans. Listen, those of you who have phones full of appointments, calendars. Those of you who have long-range retirement funds. James knows we make plans. The question is, do we make our plans from a posture of pride, or do we make them from a posture of humility? And again, I don't, I don't think plans are the primary thing James is concerned about, or, or the making of plans. He knows we make plans. He knows it's part of our, our, our human need to think about the future. What he warns against in verse 16 is the way that our plans become arrogant schemes. He warns us against the way that we use our, our mind to project a future in which we're independent from God's provision, we're independent from God's purpose, we're independent from God's claim on our lives, that we actually belong to him. And so in the same way that that slander invites us up into that place of pride to be like God and speaking against or judging another person. When we set our own plans, when we dictate our direction and the timetable for our lives, James says in the same way we put ourselves in the position of God. We choose to do God's work for him. James says, once again, we are not cut out for the job. In verse 14, he points this out. He says, how can you make all of these grandiose plans when you don't even know what will happen tomorrow, let alone next year? How is it that we presume to dictate the terms of our lives when when we're only a mist that's here briefly and then gone, James says. Why do we exert all of this pressure on ourselves and on other people to make reality match our expectations? Only to be frustrated and angry and disappointed when it doesn't turn out the way we hope. Why are we trying so hard to control what we know we cannot? Think James would say it comes back down to that position, that posture of pride. To give up control of our plans means being okay with dependence. It means submitting our plans to God with open hands. And as he says in verse 15, learning to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and we will do this or we will do that. And notice the shift there between this is my plan and the prayer there in verse 15. If it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. They're still both plans. It's not giving up on the making of plans. But it's a plan offered, again, from a posture of humility. It's a plan that the Lord is invited into with us. 
And so let me offer a second exercise this week. So we're practicing humble speech. We could also practice the making of humble plans. And I'd invite you to think about one particular area of planning. Maybe it's an area of planning where you feel especially overwhelmed, or frustrated, or stressed, or anxious. Maybe there are plans you've made. Maybe there are plans you feel like other people have made for you. But I'd invite you to, to take those plans and consider what it would look like to bring the Lord into those plans with you. What would it look like to give God to own the outcome of those plans rather than just you? What would it look like, what, what would the Lord have to say about what success looks like regarding those plans? And maybe consider what, what obedience to him would look like as a different metric. A final dimension that I think is worth reflecting on in, in our plans is how those plans create space for other people. Do our plans allow other people to have their own integrity, their own agency, so that we don't have to fit them into our plan and control them? Are we willing to share with other people in God's plans for us? So we think about living in that posture of humility, living in the care and the goodness of our Lord. Let me finish with just a few verses from Psalm 146. We opened the service with these this morning. Let me pray these for you or with you. And I would just invite you, you can close your eyes. And if you'd like to offer that plan with open hands, you can do that. You can, you can hand those things to the Lord as you hear these promises spoken. The psalmist says, Praise the Lord. Let everything in me praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. Don't put your confidence in powerful people. There is no help for you there. When they breathe their last breath, they return to the earth and all their plans with them. But joyful are those who have the God of Israel as their helper, whose hope is in the Lord, their God. Amen.